But uh, open up your uh, Bibles to Colossians chapter 4, please. As we continue through the book of Colossians, we will be coming to an end, not tonight, but possibly in the next two weeks we shall be finished with this book. Colossians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Live Wisely is our title. Listen to Paul. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Father, like always, we we bow before you and we ask your blessing on everything we do, God. Everything we do, from the breaking of bread, to our worship and song, to our prayer and exhortations, to especially the breaking of the word of God. As we open up this word, these two verses, Father God, I just pray you unleash the power that's in these two verses of scripture, Father God. Help us understand the magnitude of what Paul is saying here in these two verses of Scripture, how it applies to our life, Father God. Uh, We ask your blessing upon it in Christ's precious name. Amen and amen. You know, we come to a place in our epistle here. Let me fix my technology. Where Paul moves from the believer's prayer life that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago in verses 2, 3, and 4 to the the believer's public life now. This is the first time we really enter into public life in these four chapters. There's only four chapters to the epistle. We've been in it for a while. But now a transition is moving to how to live. My mind is filled with an understanding of Jesus now. My heart is overwhelmed with his greatness, with his preeminence, with his, uh, all his power, all his authority, not just to forgive sins, but also to cast down Satan, to cast down his demons, to cast down a religious works righteousness mentality where I think we have to work our way into God's graces. I found out Christ, Christ has invited me into God's graces. But what do we do with it? How do we live it out? That's where Paul goes now. In these two verses, Paul sums up how an insider, an insider to God and to his mystery of summing up all of existence in Jesus Christ, shall live among those who are not insiders. He's teaching us how to live wisely with those who are Outside, Did you ever consider yourself a VIP ever in your life? Did you ever get red carpet treatment? Did you ever get the best seats at the stadium? The best seats at the restaurant? Did you ever get treated as a VIP? Chances are most of us might have tasted here and there, but we really don't understand that world. Did you know you're an insider to the mystery of God for creation? Did you ever consider yourself to be privileged so much so that what we do every Sunday, what we just did in worship now, something that's going to last forever, it's the only thing God's concerned about is true worship of His Son and the building up of His church, 
in the image of his son. It's the only thing he's concerned about. It's going to go on forever. That everybody who's not privileged to it is an outsider. Do we ever think in those terms? We might say the saved and what? We might say the children of God, the children of Satan. We might say those who are in the light, those who are in the... But do you ever think of people as outsiders? It's almost uh, has a, a very negative connotation as there's some kind of uh, prejudice here. And that's not what Paul is talking about. There's not a prejudice. It's not but a 21st century American twist on the text. That's not what's going on here. Paul is making the distinction. In the Old Testament, it would have been the nation of Israel and all the other nations of the world. In the New Testament, we're insiders. The rest of the world are outsiders. But Paul is teaching us something here. How to live amongst those who don't know Christ yet. Amen? How do we live? How do we conduct ourselves? What's our public behavior? What's our public persona? What What do people that don't know Christ think about you? What do they think about me? What do they think about the church? Are they suspicious? Are they cynical? Are they malicious? Are they slanderous? Are they curious? Are they sensitive? Are they caring? Are they listening? Are they watching? I can tell you now, the text teaches us that people are what? They're watching. You can rest assured they are watching. But how do we live now? How do we live with the mystery of Christ? We're the privileged insiders that need to take the mystery of Christ to the outsider. They're the ones that knew Christ, the mystery of God. That's what made them an insider. They used to be outsiders. You and I used to be outsiders. We were outside of Christ. We were in the world without God and without any real hope. We had false hope. We had a false sense of security, but it wasn't real living hope that conquered the grave, conquered Satan, and conquered sin. That comes with Christ. Only Christ and a relationship with Christ. A man must be born again in Christ. He must be truly repentant and see their sin and see what Christ has done. And the beauty and the loveliness of Christ's sacrifice on Good Friday on their behalf. These were people that knew Christ. They had great love for the saints. They had a a hope laid up for them in heaven, and they knew it. And they knew why. It's because God qualified them. Even though they were once in the darkness, this church knew they were now in the light, in the kingdom of His Son. A Son who is in the image of the invisible God. A Son who is the firstborn among all creation. A Savior in whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether there were thrones or domains, rules or authorities, all things were created through this Savior, this friend, this, this friend of sinners. And this church knew Him. They knew the Son who was before all things, the Son who holds the whole universe together, the Son who was the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the Son who was the fullness of God, was pleased to dwell in Him. And this church was now hidden with him, the Son, and God. If we go through everything, I just highlighted some of the great privileges we find in chapter 1 and 2. For this church and for you and me. But how should this blessed insider live now, who is hidden with Christ and God? How do you live? What's next? What's on the agenda? 
Do they sit around and come every Sunday and speak to each other how blessed we are? You're blessed, Brother Verdi. You're blessed, Sister Terry. You're blessed, the whole now. Is that what we do? Is that what Christians do? Of course not. Do we go outside and lord it over and stand in judgment of the outsider? Do we keep them outside? Of course not. Of course not. If we go through this text, which we've been doing, Paul has been building this church up and making them strong and confirming and reaffirming them in the faith that their sins are washed away, that they are co-heirs with Christ, that they are sons and daughters of God, that they are God's children for now and forever, that Christ has paid the price, that they are perfectly complete in Christ. Paul has painstakingly went through the details of the gospel to make sure that this church knew, they knew it very well that their faith stands on the resurrection and death of Jesus Christ and nothing can move them at all. And now what he's saying is go out into the world and live it. Go out. It's game day. I've built you up. You know the truth now. Now go out amongst the people who are considered outsiders because they don't know Christ yet and they hold us in suspicion and they're cynical of us and they watch us. Go out and live it and show them and give them no excuse for any ill treatment. When they mock you, give them something to eat. When they challenge you, give them a drink of water. When they slap you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Go out and live it now. Go out and infiltrate society as a salt and the light of the world. As I was meditating on this for the last couple of weeks, especially this last week, and you know, we like to come up with an illustration. And I, and I thought, I remember playing football, and I remember that I was part of this insider. It was called the New Rockney Juniors. And to make this squad, you were an insider. You were somebody in this neighborhood, in this whole region here. If you made this squad at 16, 17, or 18, you were privileged. It was... People would come far and wide all over South Brooklyn to try to make this team. I remember one year in 1976, we had 125 guys uh, trying to make 40 spots. That's a lot of men. And after six weeks, we still had 80 men because everybody wanted to make this team. It was grueling. The practices on Tuesday night, uh, Thursday night, Saturday and Sunday, it was grueling. It was a grueling almost 10 weeks of scrimmages and, and challenging to make that squad. And I remember making it. I, I remember feeling like an insider. I, I was there. I made it. I made a starting position. I, I couldn't wait. Couldn't wait to get out there. All the hard work. I couldn't wait to emulate my coaches. I couldn't wait to please the coaches that poured themselves out into me and challenged me. And then confirmed me and reaffirmed me emotionally and with words that you made the team. You made the squad. You can play ball. Go out there. I couldn't wait to recklessly throw my body around to do anything to get the guy with the ball. One person, two people, three people made no difference. I wanted to play ball. So it is for the Christian who's confirmed and affirmed in the faith. You want to get out there. 
I can do all things through Christ. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. I'm more than a conqueror. I want to go out and I want to put my game face on of loving sinners who might not like me. And I want to show them how awesome our God is. That's what Paul is saying. I've affirmed you. I confirmed you. I built you up in the faith. Now go out and live it. Live it. Show them Christ. Show them our doctrine changes life. Show them what true, genuine love is. Show them, live it. Walk the extra mile with them. Show the outsider that they too are invited to come on the inside. That's the spirit of what's going on here. These aren't just a couple of loose verses of scripture to encourage you to go out and be nice people. Let's not miss What's really going on here? This is a transition. Paul has poured himself out into building these people up and teaching them the genuine faith. And now he's saying, now go out and genuinely show it to people. Enjoy it. Let your speech be gracious. Seasoned with salt. That means be witty. Go out and enjoy. Go out and show them that religion's good. Go out and show them that relationship with Jesus is fun. Holiness is beautiful. It's not trying to go, I can't drink, I can't smoke, I can't do this anymore, I can't fornicate. No, go out and show them the beauty of living for God. That's what he's saying. Too many times Christians, they struggle so badly in their life that other people don't know if God's really alive. Such weak faith. They don't really, is God really alive? If he's really alive, they would see him in our life. Go out and love them. Go out and love the outsider. Invite them. With all wit. With gracious speech. With full acceptance. Invite them to be an insider. This is where our analogy ends, though. Good analogy. I liked it. Bring me a lot of life. For an athlete can prepare greatly for a short term. A boxer, a football team. You can, you know, prepare greatly. And an Olympic athlete can train for up to three, five, three, three or four years for athletic games. The long term, they can truly prepare precisely with precision. Not just in, 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 in nutritionally, in their sleep, uh, in, the, in the athletic endeavors. They, they, they master their art. But with the Christian It's a constant preparing, being affirmed and confirmed in grace over and over and over. We never master it. Are you with me? But we do get better. As God washes us, every Sunday we come and we worship. And we're washed and we recalibrate and we go, oh, this is what life is all about. You know what I mean? I'm I'm losing my focus over here. I got to remember that it's about the kingdom of God. I need to be recalibrated. I need to be refocused. I need to be recommitted to God. Uh, I need to have my washed feet again. I walked in the world for another week and, you know, I didn't pray enough. I wanted to pray. I didn't read my Bible enough, but I'll go to church because I know they're praying at the church and I know they're preparing. And I know they're studying. They're loving the Lord at the church and I'll go and I'm going to feel the presence of God. I'm going to refocus because that's the Christian life. We don't prepare for three months and go out and win a battle. Are you with me? Christ did that. We could never do that. 
And this is how we put on the full armor of God. And this is how we go out into the world. These verses carry both a representative tone. We represent God. I'll get into that. But it's also an evangelistic one. It speaks of both, and I'll get into that. So, you know, so how should someone who is dead and now live, live their life? They were brought, brought back from the brink of death. They were dead in sin and trespasses, and they were in the, the kingdom of darkness, and they were rescued. How do you live now? How do you approach life? And how do you approach fellowship with friends and co-workers, neighbors and family members, and, and even antagonists? How, how do I get along with the antagonist? Do, do I even bother? Do I give them the time of day? Do I just walk by them? Does God really care for them? Should I care for them? How do we live in a hostile society that's hostile towards our faith and suspicious Suspicious of our faith. They were suspicious of this new sect called the Way. They were suspicious of these of this uh, of this cult of Judaism that were followers of Christ. These Christians, disciples of this man called Christ. They were they were still suspicious of us two thousand years later. Us Bible believing, singing our Hallelujah songs, going to church. They hold us in suspicion. So how do we really live in this world? This church, all of a sudden, everybody they knew, just like you and me, everybody we knew, at the point of my conversion, at that point of your conversion, at the point of my conversion, at the point of their conversion, everybody in their life, friend, family, foe, became an outsider to them. Instantaneously, everybody was an outsider. Instantaneously, they became a child of God. When you were converted, you became an insider. You became VIP. And everybody in the world is an outsider. And we're called to go out outside and invite them in. Immediately upon conversion. The first time I really saw this is when me and my wife were talking to my mother about Christ. We were talking to my mother about our new conversion. We weren't using words like conversion and born again. We, weren't, we were just really sharing enthusiasm, this, this spontaneous enthusiasm for God. Because that's how it is when you're saved. You have this childlike faith that just, you just want to share it with everybody. And my mother thought we were nuts. And I remember telling me and my wife, why have you left the faith? She said that. I never saw my mother go to church once. And here she is asking me why I left of the faith. My mother was an outsider. And I wanted her desperately to be an insider. Which I believe in my heart she did before she passed away. But the point is, upon conversion, everybody in your life, unless they're a Christian, co-worker, son, daughter, spouse, mother, father, friend, cult makes no debt outsiders. The Bible is black and white. But the door is open for everybody to become an insider. There are five things I want to mention tonight. I think our text points to. I'll go through them briefly to make a point. Paul is told about live wisely. Walk wisely biblically in the New Testament. It's to live it out. How do you live? He's saying walk wisely. And as I said, it has two perspectives. 
the one more than the other. Biblically, to live wisely means to live morally upright. In a moral wilderness that the Bible teaches us, the culture we live in, in this moral wilderness that you live, live upright. Live ethically and morally upright in this world. It has a a, a moral uh, definition to it. We see this in Ephesians 5.15. Let's read it for a moment. We pull it up. Paul says something similar in Ephesians. He says, look carefully now, then how you walk or you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What are you saying here? If I was to paraphrase, just don't go around mindless anymore. Actions matter. Interpersonal relationship and action with other people, it matters. Stay alert. Temptation is everywhere now. Be careful. Be on the alert. Be sober-minded. Be careful how you walk. Don't be foolish. Don't walk around that Satan's not your enemy. Don't walk around as old friends, I'm going to try to drag you backwards. Don't walk around as the things you used to struggle with, I'm going to come knocking on the door again and start reminding you, sure, you can have another one. You can do it. But contextually, what Paul is saying here, it's how we represent God in the world. Though biblically, there's a moral issue here, and Paul is talking about that, but really what he's saying here is, how do you represent God in the world? This is not just some kind of canned propaganda, and I don't want you to miss this. When he says walk wisely, he doesn't say this, he doesn't say, uh, look as good as you can, uh, so that others might think more highly of Jesus. Maybe they'll come to Jesus if you look good, you smell good, you dress good, you speak well, fake them out. Do whatever you can just to get them in. It's like, you know, get them in with the Christian cliches. You know, there's some kind of propaganda motivation. Like we're trying to sell something. You know, we're trying to sell a used car that has bad tires and a bad engine. But you dress it up real well. And you you advertise it really good and get real clever. And then you get some fool to buy it. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying put on your best face when you go out and fake everybody out. This means think as Christ thought, act as Christ acted. Paul is saying this, you represent him now in this world. You're the insider who brings the light to the outsider. You're the opportunity for someone else's Salvation to the inside. Time is not forever. The end will come when it's too late. Don't blow it with foolish behavior. People are watching. Making a good impression is not everything to the Christian witness. Truth saves I want you to know something. You can walk on water. Nobody's going to get saved. Jesus performed many miracles, and they just walked away. A witness is important, but it's not everything. But a witness in the way we live is not unimportant either. Let's remember that. 
just can't live some kind of sloppy life, some kind of careless life, some kind of reckless life, and to think that I'm really going to make an impression for people to, to come to the Lord. That's, that's absurd. Wise living is truly attractive. You might not realize that. Someone young might not realize that. But when you get older, live whizzing is very attractive. I'm attracted to people who've lived the faith. Listen, at 55 years old, I mean, I know what chapter I'm in over here. And there is something very attractive to people that have lived out the faith. When I sit there and I listen to someone, I think of my wife. I think how wise. I remember my wife going through chemotherapy and going through cancer. And, and she wouldn't miss church for anything. She had wise life. She, she lived it out for everybody to see. But when you get around someone who has gone through the fire and has lived the life of faith and holiness and fidelity, that's attractive. You don't want to ever not be around that. When you've got people that have walked in the Lord in this moral wilderness for two, three, four, five, six, seven decades, faithful to God, you want to be around that. That's wise, powerful living. You don't want to trade that in for anything. It's attractive. There's something beautiful. I mean, John often speak about, you know, when we're reading, we're studying on a sermon. I, I can't help but to read who I read. And, and I put the book down. I thank God for his faithful ministers of the gospel. I thank the Lord for the people he's raised up. I'm reading people who are 400 years dead. And I'm thanking God for how he used them. Even though they're dead, they still speak. They're, even as, as the book of Hebrews says that Abel was dead, but he still speaks. His life was still a witness of his fidelity and faith towards God. Wise living is attractive. Wise living could be the greatest sermon over a prolonged period of time that people will ever hear. To hear about Jesus is one thing. But to genuinely see Jesus in your life, through the ups and downs of your life, through the roller coaster of your life, through the uncertainties and the curveballs that life throws at you, and you're still in love with Jesus, you're still compassionate, you're still kind, you're still gentle, you're still joyful, you're still living a life of self-control, you're still loving people, that is attractive. And the reason is not just so others can be saved. There's no staying power. There's no way I could live the life the Bible calls me to live so someone else could be saved. It's too much pressure. I could never do it. I'd crumble under the pressure. To live a life that's pleasing to God, as Romans 12 says, is our reasonable act of worship. It's worship. When you think of living as worship, it's easy. It has its challenges, but it's sweet. He goes on saying, making the best use of the time. Number two, the New Testament clearly taught, especially Paul, that the time is almost here. The night is almost over. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. To the New Testament authors, Christ's coming was right around the corner. 
Making the best use of the time reminds me of a, an efficiency expert. It's somebody who micromanages and multitask all at one time. Not an hour goes by. I remember my wife giving me a list, a honey to-do list. I had six or seven things on it. She gave it to me on Monday and yelled at me by Friday night because nothing was done. <laughs> because I didn't have enough time. Now, I'm not saying that. I really, I was like, how do you do it? She said, get the keys. Get in the car. An hour later, everything was done. She redeemed the time. I'm all over the map. But we understand that sometimes you can multitask. And you can be so efficient with time. Because time is precious. Time is valuable. But we can lose the biblical understanding and teaching about how important time is. Time's running out. It really, really is running out. You ever see the, the national debt? You ever see that little ticket thing that the national debt, how fast it's going? That's our life. And it's over. Time is running out. Today, the writer of Hebrews says, today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today when you hear his voice, you might not hear it tomorrow. Time with other people is an important commodity and truly should be valued, especially with outsiders. And I think that's something we really miss. Anytime we bring wise living into our time with others is time well spent. No matter how mundane it might seem, any moment, any cup of coffee, any time I'm in the presence of an unbeliever is a time to redeem for the sake of Christ and their souls. Wise living, gracious speech, seasoned with salt, redeeming the time, showing them Christ in the way you approach them, showing them Christ in the way you accept them, showing them Christ in the way you speak to them, speak to them in an encouraging, uplifting way, and not in the derogatory, self-righteous tone that I'm the insider and you're the outsider. And get saved, you sinner. Paul, for sure, is making sure people don't fall into the trap of a self-righteous attitude towards outsiders redeem the time the gospel gives us real reason for living and brings real value to every moment of every time I'm with anybody with anybody he goes on to say let your speech always be gracious dialogue with Others should always carry with it a sense of genuine concern for them. Please don't miss this. You know what these are? You know what we're speaking about here? These are social skills. These are people skills. And you can sit here and say, well, I'm not a people person. Well, get to be a people person because God calls you to be a people person. Whether we want to change our attitude or not, God calls us to have social graces. God calls us to meet and value all people. God calls us to meet and value and be compassionate and uplifting to all people. To the best we can, of course. We're not Christ. 
But if we're aware that God wants us to redeem the time with the outsider and be gracious in our speech, let it be seasoned with salt. If we realize that this is not, uh, uh, this is an exhortation. This is a command. Paul's not saying, do me a favor, do Christ a favor. This is a commandment. He's actually saying, continue and keep on every day to be gracious to the outsider. Every time you meet somebody, never stop. Dialogue with others should always carry with a sense of genuine concern. And this is not about choosing right words to sound good or look caring. Let me just fake it over here. Let me, let me, let me let them think I really care about them. But it's about words that naturally reflect our newborn again hearts and our attitude towards them. Words, the way we look at people, the nuances of our emotions says so much. Our body language says so much. Are we genuinely listening to somebody? Are we genuinely caring for somebody? That's what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about get all your Christian cliches and a couple of verses of scripture and memorize them and go out there and slam everybody over the head with it. He's saying take the time. Walk a mile with somebody. Listen to them. Be their friend. Maybe one day you'll help them be a disciple. But let them be a friend first. Spend time with them. Be gracious as God was gracious towards you. This is not about words. It's about an inner attitude of how we feel about people. Our words to others will tell a lot about our personal understanding and how we responded to the grace of God in Christ. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, that's edifying, as it fits the occasion. Let it may... Let it, may, let it may give grace to those who hear. So all our intercourse with others should have an elevating, edifying, encouraging, and strengthening effect to it. Not an arrogant or self-righteous tone of, uh, or being derogatory or belittling. And, no. We should really go out and meet people that, that they're struggling in life and to meet them. Christians should be truly the greatest encouragers of all men. Are you a teacher? Are you a police officer? Are you a coach? Are you a parent? Do you do anything in the community at all? Anything. Right now, are you in this room? Can you hear me on tape? Do you do anything within the community? then you should be an encourager of all people. That is an open door to be gracious in speech, seasoned with salt, redeeming the time as you walk wisely and represent and exemplify Christ. The fourth one, he says, let it be seasoned with salt. Just the approach of to friendship and the life that a Christian should carry with it should carry with it a savory component 
there should be something that tastes good to the soul of another person. Someone should leave our company. Don't miss this. Should leave our company and saying, I like being with that person. There's something encouraging about that person. There's something uplifting about that person. When they look at me, they're not judging me. They're, they're actually, I can sense they're listening to what I have to say. What a genuine heart. The Christian life should be full of good cheer. Outside, it should cherish our time they spend with us. Did you ever think about that? How many times you've been invited back to dinner? How many times do people want to be in our presence? That's important. We should carry that kind of life and, and gracious speech, that seasoned with salt that carries this. You know, I want to go back to that restaurant and eat again. That meal was exceptional. I'd fly all the way back to Paris to eat the meal I ate Friday night. That's how good it was. It's probably the most outstanding meal I've ever... I don't think you could have made veal better than this. I'd go back. I'm looking forward to going back. There's a place in Italy the first time I ate rabbit. It was absolutely incredible. I never thought I would eat rabbit. We couldn't wait to get back three other times to go to that place. We read about a book. There's this place in Milan that makes the best calzones. We would fly into Milan purposely to go to this place. And then get on a train and go to our next destination. If you want to know where that place is, let me know. Because there's something memorable about it. We should have that kind of impression on people that are with us prolonged. I'm not talking about being with someone, asking someone for a cup of coffee and they invite me over the house. I'm talking about we're in a prolonged relationship at work and with family and friends and so on and so forth. There should be that component where people like to be around us. Because uh, we're seasoned with salt. We're not trying to have the last religious word over people's lives. You got to see it my way. Jesus is the only way. Get saved. Repent of your sins. Hurry up and get saved. I only got a couple of moments. No, no, we're to live it out with someone for decades. To love them for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Until on their deathbed they'll say, Will Christ forgive me? And you're there to say, absolutely, friend. Absolutely. Christ will forgive you. This This should naturally flow out of a heart that praises God. It's holistic to the heart that's grateful. To those who have forgiven much, love much, and those who love much, it, it flows naturally out of their disposition to give it away, to speak graciously, to have a, 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 an approachability that's seasoned with salt, that reaches out and encourages all men. Not cynical, not suspicious, not condemning. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. There is nothing worse than getting around a self righteous Christian. They can have the truth and they'll beat you to death with it. Believe now or burn. Turn or burn. The last one. He says, so that you may know how 
you ought to answer each person. I believe the point here is not just, now I want you to listen to this, not just a clear, articulate presentation of the gospel message. That's the first thing we would think about here. If Paul had in mind an articulate defense of the faith, which all Christians should strive to know, he would have said, what to answer? He doesn't say that. He says how to answer, how to speak to them. Though the content of our doctrine is surely implicit, please understand this. Though our, uh, the content of our doctrine is surely implicit, attitude of heart is surely explicit. He's talking about how we approach people with the way we speak. When people really want to know, it's not what we tell them, it's how we tell them. It's how we tell them. The whole gospel message is God stooping down, condescending, getting on his hands and knees for us to wash our feet. And that's how he told us the gospel message. He got down on his hands and knees. He didn't stand in a place of the Pharisees saying, this is how you do it. He gets down on his hands and he knees and he brings the message of salvation. So should we. That's how we speak to people. That's how we bring the message. It's not what we say. It's how we say it. We're not to be harsh and demeaning. Bunch of know-it-alls. But a genuinely concerned person. A friend to people. Caring, compassionate. Hearing people and knowing people first. As a friend. And then maybe one day as a brother and sister in Christ. The how in this verse is not Christian cliches, but Christ-like character. First Timothy, and we're closing now. Listen to First Timothy. First Timothy really captures the spirit of what Paul is saying here. I want to read the verse that we're talking about first, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Listen to 1 Timothy 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 22 to 26. He says to Timothy, So Timothy, flee youthful passions. Uh, you don't have to be uh, always right, Timothy. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the Lord with a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish ignorant controversies you know that they only breed quarrels this is what he says the Lord's servant must be must not be quarrelsome but kind to everybody are you with me this is how we speak kind to everyone not quarrelsome not trying to get the last word not trying to say my way's Betty your way's no good listen to me no 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 not quarrelsome, but kind to everybody, able to teach, having a teachable spirit, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, with this in mind, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, so that they can become an insider, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's why, our speech needs to be gracious and seasoned with salt. Perhaps God will grant them repentance 
Perhaps God will lead them to salvation. Perhaps God will bring them into the inside. Let me close with one application. Okay? One application of the text. It's called friendship. I truly believe there is such a deficient understanding towards what true friendship is. I really think that 20-year-olds and 15-year-olds and even 30- and 40-year-olds really don't understand the important component to life and human experience that friendship is. Just pure friendship. I don't think this country produces an understanding of the intangible values of friendship. You can't learn it in grammar school. They're not teaching it in college. And they're not preparing you in law school or doctorate degrees. Understand something. The church and family life should teach us the intangible value of genuine friendship. I got to drive it home. These are the true blessings of life. This is what the heart needs to experience. Friend to friend, not just with believer, but with unbeliever, to truly understand what loyalty and fidelity and trust is. Trust is. That these are the building blocks to a healthy human experience. To give trust. You know how, how wonderful it is to give someone your trust, to tell someone your secrets of your heart, and not be beaten to death with it. Do you understand how important that is to life for an unbeliever to tell you, I got to i got to tell you something about myself. You know how serious that is? When someone reveals a secret of their heart to us. Do you know how important it is to reveal our secrets to another human being? I can rest assured in this room there's people that have no idea what true, they're starving for true friendship. This world is starving for true friendship. Starving. Have no idea. And I'll tell you why. It's costly. True friendship is costly. It's time consuming. It takes all the power of your emotions to listen. Responsibility is a great word, brother. It's a responsibility. Amen. To experience compassion and mercy and understanding. These are healing virtues to the human experience. To really hear positive affirmation from someone. Words of affirmation. And to hear a positive, sensitive, critique and constructive criticism of our personalities and our behavior. The Christian church is deficient in what I just said. The world is deficient in genuine friendship. Let me tell you something now. By the time you reach your 50s and your 60s, you're going to want and you'll be starving for genuine friendships. Because the things we chase when we're 20, 30, and 40, they're empty. They're empty. You will starve. The world is starving to death for genuine friendship. You have Christ. You are hidden with Christ in God. In you is the hope of glory. Christ Jesus himself. You carry the mystery of God with you. When you go out into the world. Become a friend to the world. Become a friend. Let your heart be opened up. 
Be approachable. And watch what God does. Amen. Let's pray. And we'll, let's just, as your eyes are closed and we're praying, I'm going to ask the ushers to come up and we're going to take communion. And allow God just to speak to your hearts about the sermon, how we were speaking to you. Father, we just ask you to bless our time in communion service as we worship you with the body and the blood of your son, Father God, as a, uh, uh, an objective sermon, Father God, a sermon before us, Lord God, of what Christ has done at the cross, Lord God. And, and we come, Father God, and we want to discern our own hearts, Father God. God, check our hearts, see our motives, reveal our attitudes, Father God, to everybody around us, Father God. Let us be a good witness, Lord God. And God, where we have failed, forgive us. Forgive us, Father. Remind us of how radically in love you are with us, even with our mistakes and our sins. You radically love us, God. Raise us up. Raise our understanding of friendship to the unsaved and to the saved to a new level, God. Raise our understanding, raise our ability to truly and generally be a friend to all people, Father God. In Christ's name, amen.